I just want to give you permission to come into this moment as you are. Because uh, uh, that's the only way we can come. And so you don't need to be not where you are or where you are. Just be where you are and who you are and just come into the presence of Jesus this morning. And Jesus, as we turn our attention toward you, I am thankful that we do not need to pretend to be that which we are not. And so we come tired, we come overwhelmed, we come anxious, we come burdened, and we come joyful, and we come apathetic. We come just checking the box, but we're here, and so Holy Spirit, would you come, and would you do what only you can do in this place? May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart uh, be acceptable to you and fruitful among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. And go to Colossians uh, chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to kind of jump right in. Uh, Mark your calendar for November the 17th. 4 to 7 p.m. is what will be Regen's first ever, I don't know what to call it, festival of homiletics, festival of preaching. Um, Over the next couple months, I'm going to be working with uh, some new and developing preachers in our community to develop their preaching voices. And on Sunday night, the 17th, we will come and they will each preach the sermon that they'll spend this fall preparing. Um, and so I'm, we got to work together yesterday, and I'm excited in our community of people saying, I want to learn how to do this skill because there are voices that are not mine that I think can mature us, which is really good. Um, and yeah, parenting conference, uh, Thursday, the 24th of October. Uh, if you want to be a parent, if you're newly married, um, if you have kids, I will say, just to clarify, I think it'll be helpful if you have teens, but once your kids are kind of beyond the teen years and out of the house, it's kind of not as much with you in mind, but if you're engaged, you're married, and you're thinking about family being a part of your life together, be there on Thursday the 24th, um, right here in this building. Uh, so I'm really, really excited about that. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. At the end, we'll have some stuff to pray through, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, in this book of Colossians, in this book of Colossians, Paul is addressing this little church And it's this little church that he's never met, but that does not stop him from loving them. And he's calling this little church back to the simplicity of Jesus, to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus. In Colossians 1, Paul says, you know, without your hearts and your minds fully engaged, you will lose a sense, you will lose sight of this supreme and satisfying Savior. And the last bits of 1 and 2... Excuse me. Uh, The last bits of one and two, I'm good. The last bits of one and two, Paul speaks of how great a struggle it is to help people see the simplicity of the gospel. And if you're a parent or a grandparent, if you're a ministry leader in our church, if you're doing that at work, you know that there's a challenge to that. You know that there is a challenge of helping people reach maturity. And now starting in Colossians chapter two, verse six, Paul wants to specifically address what's causing these Colossians this little church, these believers, to drift away from the simplicity of Jesus and in so doing, 
address our drifting away. Remember, the Colossian church has two groups inside of it. On the one hand, there are these Jews that have come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and the fulfillment of the covenant promises they have received. On the other hand, there's these Greco-Roman Christians who worshipped other gods in temples in Colossae and elsewhere. When we place our faith in Jesus, something happens to us. When we, fa- when we step across the line of faith, something happens to us. We are, in that moment, totally, utterly, and forever united to Jesus. We are objectively cut away from, removed from, transferred out of our old way of life and grafted into and transferred into a new way of life. That is objectively true. Right now, the Father looks on me and sees in me and on me the righteousness of Jesus. Yet what is so objectively true only often becomes gradually true in our experience because I carry into my life with Jesus and into our community baggage from how I used to be. And these Jewish Christians who have become Messianic Jews, they bring with them... Weird. Could you get me some water? Let's try that approach too because the coffee doesn't seem to be... The Messianic Jews bring with them a tendency toward legalism, toward strict rule following, towards condemnation for those who don't follow those rules, and what Paul will call in this text, pious self-denial and pride. And pride. Yet these Greco-Romans also bring something with them, some baggage into it with them, and what they bring is obedience not to the rule of Jesus, but to the rules of this world. Legalism on the one hand, worldliness on the other. And so Paul addresses these Colossian Christians drawn to legalism, drawn to worldliness. Oh, there it is. He says, just now, as you have accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him. Let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will go strong in the truth that you were taught and you will overflow. Thanks, baby. You will overflow with thankfulness. Notice the force of this language. You've accepted Christ as your Lord. He calls the shots. He leads the way. So now make sure that you continue to follow him instead of someone else. Not some version of him that works with your baggage and your past. Let your roots grow down into him, not the legalism or the worldliness of your life before Christ. Let your lives be built on him, not the good things you do, not the bad things that you don't do. Grow strong in what you were taught. Not some other kind of teaching that tickles your ears but is ultimately false. Hear hear me on this. Some of you are new to Jesus. Some of you are newer to Jesus. Some of you have been hanging out with Jesus for years, for decades. And in both cases, to new Christians, to newer Christians, to longtime Christians, to longtime followers of Jesus, to new ones, he's, Paul says, just as you accepted Christ as Lord, continue to follow him. Don't drift off course. See, Paul is getting intense with these newer Christians in Colossae because they're new Christians. They're just beginning their journey, and a few degrees to the right, a few degrees to the left may not make much of a difference in the early years, but as time goes on, 
As time goes on, it could mean the difference between landing on Jesus and being somewhere in the woods. See, here's my aim this morning. It's twofold. First, to help new and newer Christians in our community get set in the right direction, to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus only, to make sure we're aiming straight for Jesus, and not an inch or to the left. Hear me on this. Come back to me. I see your eyes drifting. Come here. It's my aim this morning to help new and newer Christians get set in the right direction, to follow Jesus only, to make sure that you're aiming straight for Jesus. Not an inch or two this way, not an inch or two that way, straight for Jesus. And second, my desire is for those of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, I want to help you finish strong because I want to hold up a mirror. I want to give you an opportunity to check the GPS of your heart and make sure that you're still on course. And I want to follow Paul's argument in this text, but Paul does so weird. He kind of addresses, you know, these worldly Christians, and then he addresses the legalistic Christians. Then he talks about the gospel. Then he addresses how the gospel applies to the legalistic Christians, how it applies to the worldly Christians. What I want to do is kind of follow his argument about worldliness, and I want to follow then his argument about legalism, and then show you the gospel is what I'm going to do. So look at what Paul says uh, in verses 8 through 10. Don't let anyone capture you, Paul says, with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. He says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body, so you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. See, Paul wants these new Christians from a Greco-Roman worldly background to come to church, and they're coming to church, and their heads are full of, Paul says, empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. Listen, if you are new to Jesus out of a background, not of being raised in a Christian home, but if you are new to Jesus out of a background of not hearing much of church, not hearing much of Jesus, you would probably fall more in this category. You're coming to church with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense in your head that Paul says is of human thinking. Paul says it's actually of spiritual origin, evil spiritual origin. But you walk into church and just assume that Jesus has nothing negative to say about these things. This rings true to me when I hear new Christians say to me, God just wants me to be happy. This rings true when new Christians say to me, God won't give me more than I can handle. I think, where did you learn that? Well, some Christian I know that's stupid posted it on Facebook. God does not want you to be happy. God wants you to have everlasting joy. God does not want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. But happiness is a different animal that has nothing to do with this conversation. And it's a small lie that if followed, gets us off track from really aiming for Jesus. And so Paul goes on to say, jump down to verse 20 of Colossians 2. He says, you've died with Christ. He set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? See, such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion and pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desire. See, the Colossians, Paul says, are following the rules of this world. They've not realized that they come into the people of Jesus, they are grafted in and united with him, and they don't realize that the rules have changed. 
And Paul brings in these don'ts that reflect pious self-denial. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. See, there was this asceticism that means self-denial and strong discipline present in Greco-Roman religion, uh, pagan religion. The body doesn't matter, um, that body and, body and spirit are separate. And so there was this, there, the Colossian Christians that come from a uh, pagan background are bringing in these other rules that Paul calls pious self-denial. Now, these ideas are still present in our culture. Don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. They're present in our culture, but not in the way we would think. We have severe asceticism in our culture, but not in the way that you would think. See, our culture uses this rule of don't taste, don't touch, don't handle when it comes to you interfering with my personal liberty and my desires. Don't you come and handle my freedom. Don't you come and involve yourself. And we practice severe asceticism in our culture for two purposes. Digital self-imagery, so people see us the way that we want them to see us. And for sex. We, have, we are in a, a profoundly ascetic culture as long as it is me practicing my personal freedom that doesn't get infringed upon to pursue my sexual desires. And Paul says, these are the rules of the world. Paul says, when you become part of the people of Jesus, things that you assume are normal are actually high-sounding nonsense, are actually foolish arguments, are actually rules of this world that are sourced in, Paul says, interestingly, spiritual powers and authorities. And Paul is actually talking about spiritual powers and authorities a great deal in this letter. First in chapter 2, verse 20, and then chapter 2, verse 8, he speaks of spiritual powers of this world. He mentions rulers and authorities in unseen places in chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 1, 16. See, Paul roots the worldliness that these pagan Christians are bringing into the church, into their walk with Jesus. He's rooting it in spiritual powers and authorities. In other words, Paul's saying these notions that you take for granted, that you assume are just fine, that you think at a cultural level are no big deal. They are far from neutral. Instead, because our world, watch this, because our world is made of sinful human beings who collectively establish a sinful culture that is in open rebellion to God, we are actually in a culture that is under the authority of unseen spirits and powers in the unseen places. And Paul says, the rules that you are following in our culture, the roles of tolerance and progressivism uh, and, and, and in this kind of encultured anything goesness that we bring into the church, Paul says, that's not just neutral, that is of an evil origin. And here's a really good example of this. The best example that I have, and I know that some of you have lived in this place before, and so this is not shaming you, but I'm just going to kind of name it for what it is, living together before marriage that you think Jesus has nothing to say about to the point that when I talk about it, I sound shrill and old-fashioned, is not a neutral idea. It is of a spiritual power or authority. And we can argue about, does the Bible, we were just talking about this in preaching cohort yesterday, does the Bible clearly say anywhere that living together before marriage is, is not what God's desire is for us. No, but if you track the overarching narrative of Scripture, if you track the overarching narrative of what's happening, we realize it doesn't work. We realize it doesn't work. And I understand why we do it. Ours is the generation that has experienced more divorce than any other. And by the way, if you're divorced, I'm not using that to shame you. I'm just telling you what the facts are, that my parents' generation has the highest divorce rates in the country. And so, of course, my generation wants to stick the toe in the water and decide if this is real. But what I'm telling you is that you are following the rules of the world, and you're walking into church and not assuming that Jesus might have something different to say about that. 
When we enter into the way of Jesus, we suddenly find that the things that we thought of were neutral and no big deal. Jesus actually has something to say about it. And Tim Keller has a great quote about this. He says, we kind of come to God assuming that if there was a God, he wouldn't have anything to say that, would a, that we would disagree with or that would offend us. Right? If your God never says anything that offends you or disagrees with you or makes you uncomfortable, you're probably worshiping yourself, not God. We looked at this idea in, this, in the winter of this, um, how, of this quote from John Mark Homer. The devil's primary stratagem to drive the human soul and society into ruin is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Living together is normalized in a sinful society. It plays to a disordered desire of lust and fear. And it is all based on a deceitful idea that it's a good idea to test the waters before I commit. And that's not just an option, it's not just advice. See, this is, again, we talked about this last week, we confuse good news with good advice. News is, because this thing has happened, I have to fundamentally respond to it in another way. Advice is, I can kind of do whatever I want with it. But we do this all the time. There's these rules that we inherit from the world, we walk into the people of Jesus, we become part of the way of Jesus, we become part of the people of Jesus, and we just are blown away to find out that Jesus might actually have something to say about these things. For example... It's silly to hold myself or my children or my grandchildren to a biblical standard of sexuality because times have changed. The best days for our community are behind us and we need to figure out a way to get back to the good times as soon as possible. Management and therefore leadership isn't to be trusted because they're not looking out for the little guy. Running my kids to every activity I can get them in at the expense of my marriage and my spiritual life is what being a parent is all about. I don't need community because I have a family and family is all that I need. I'm entitled to not just a little bit, but a whole lot of rest and relaxation. Every ailment of body, every ailment of mind is not just something that I should persevere through, but something I should have medicated to escape from. And we bring these ideas into our following Jesus and we don't assume that there is anything that Jesus would have to say about them. And to these worldly Christians, Paul is saying, actually, hey guys, Jesus has a great deal to say about these things. We could nuance every item on that list till kingdom come. We could lose the forest from the trees and so lose the simplicity of Jesus saying, I want to have lordship over that. I want to have lordship over that. Jesus is going to bring those people back to Jesus. But let's just talk to the legalist. See, here's what I think is happening in Colossians as they're reading this, this book. You've got these Jewish Christians on this side of the church. And they've been super obedient and good little boys and girls their whole life. And on this side of the church are all these worldly Christians. And so Paul is writing all these things about the worldly Christians on this side. And like the, the legalistic Christians are kind of fist bumping each other and going, ha ha, we told them, right? And then Paul takes a breath, and then he says this in verse 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. Do you notice, by the way, this is why we practice infant baptism as a church. The sign of the old covenant and the sign of the new covenant are next-door neighbors and best friends in Paul's thinking. 
For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you were trusted, because you trusted in the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. If you don't know what circumcision is, you know, don't Google it. <laughs> um, see, Paul is talking to these legalistic Christians on this side of the room, and they're like, we've been circumcised. We're part of the covenant promises. We're all good. We've obeyed these things. We've done all these right things our whole life. We're pretty good people. And what Paul says is what you've missed is it doesn't matter how much skin you got down there or not. Because the reality is Christ performs a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of our sinful nature. They're looking over at that side of the room and say, they're uncircumcised heathens. What's their problem? And Christ says, actually, they've been spiritually circumcised. Have you? For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted in the mighty power of God. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 16, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or, what you, or, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. See, what's interesting is it's almost like Paul is aiming this. I have no, I'm just choosing sides of the room. There's no, no symbology to this. And everybody in the middle is like, ooh, I'm saved. Um, See, he's aiming this. He's saying, guys, don't let anybody condemn you for these things. But really, while he's talking to them, he's smacking them around over here because he's saying, stop condemning them. Don't condemn for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. These are rules, are only the shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things because their sinful minds have made them proud and they're not connected with Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments and it grows and nourishes it. See, all these legalistic Christians that had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for were saying, you know what, we should probably still practice Passover. We should still probably celebrate the Feast of Booths. We should still keep kosher. We should follow all these rules still. And shame on you people over there for not doing that. You need to be more like us. And Paul says, don't let anybody condemn you for these things because all of those things that you did in the Old Testament, all of the law, all of the prophets, all pointed forward to Jesus. And now that he's here, we don't need those anymore. We don't need those rules anymore. The substance is here. We don't need the shadow anymore. But what's interesting to me is how Paul calls both worldliness and legalism pious self-denial. And here's why. Here's why. Legalists are just worldly people who have learned to use Christian language to talk about their worldliness. They're both hypocrites. They're both wrong. Legalists, legalists, are just worldly people who have learned to use Christian language to cover it up. They're still proud. They're still practicing pious self-denial. They're still strict asceticism. And in the process, they're still disconnected from Jesus. They're still disconnected from Jesus. And what Paul is trying to help them do is he said, you've got all this legalistic baggage. You've got all this worldly baggage. I'm trying to get you to let it go, Elsa. Let it go and just get your eyes on Jesus and not be dragged to the left or to the right as you're trying to pursue him. Let me be absolutely clear about this. I was talking to a pastor in our community, and uh, they were doing this thing where they were going to make a video of some people in their church to get them to talk about their faith journey. And so they said, tell us about your relationship with Jesus. And the person starts by saying, well, you know, in this year we started attending this church, and then my kids were born, and we moved over here, so we started attending that church in that neighborhood. And about three years later, I got on this committee, and then I started leading this ministry about five years later, and oh, we used to do these so fun things, and, and now we've been here for about this long. And they said, um, that's great. What did you, what'd you learn about Jesus in that? 
And there was this long silence. They're like, I, I don't really know. Hear me on this. Hear me on this. If I say to you, tell me about your walk with Jesus, and you say anything other, anything other than Jesus lived and died and rose again for me, if you say anything other than I've been united with Christ forever, if you can say anything other than, let me tell you about this intimacy, let me tell you about this time that Jesus got a hold of my attention and I really grew this way, let me tell you about this time that Jesus intervened, let me tell you about this thing. If you, when, when you answer the question, tell me what Jesus has done for you with a list of like spiritual accomplishments and I go to church every once in a while and I give this much and I do this thing and I've done that thing, you are trusting not in Jesus. You're trusting not in Jesus. And Jesus, you're not going to get to heaven, and they're going to say, why should we let you in? And you're going to list this thing, and they're going to say, well, that's really impressive. You get a front row seat. Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And the longer you are in church, hear me on this, the longer you are in church, it is terrifying how fast this happens. The longer you are in church, you jump from this, aisle, this row to that row, and you still remain totally unchanged by the gospel. Some of you are like into church for three or four years. It does not take long for the bitterness and the anger, the anxiety to creep in and for that to dominate your spiritual life and for 60 years from now you to be grumpy, mean, old and not know Jesus. It happens this fast. So Paul brings us together and I don't know why. It's a really terrible slide. It's like, oh, thank you for that eight-point font, Kyle. Um, so if you have a Bible, look up, just look at verses 13, 14, and 15 with me. Look at 13, 14, and 15. Paul says, you were dead because your sins were not cut away. And your sinful, he said, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them in the cross. See, Paul here brings both groups back to Jesus. And let me show you how he does that. Paul brings both groups back to Jesus. He says, first of all, you need to know, legalists, you were dead in your sin. You weren't like an okay person that made, got better because you belonged to a church. You were dead and God, the subject of the verb, made you alive. He cut away your sinful nature. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. And here's how he did it. He took these laws that you want to follow and everybody else follows. Here's the problem with the law, Paul says. For every one that you got right, you got five wrong. It only served to condemn you more. And so Jesus had to take that record of wrongs and nail it to the cross. But here's the interesting thing. Here's what legalists are actually saying. Legalists see Jesus on the cross and they say, they, they don't come to Jesus as recipients. They come to Jesus as, hey, I think I have something to add to the payment of other people's sins because I'm just that good. Jesus, could you just scoot over a little bit? Hey, Roman, come here, nail my hand because I've got some righteousness that can help with this. That's what we're saying. Oh, I'm so good. I've cared for this many people. I've told this many people about my faith. I've supported the church in this way. I've given, I've served, I've done all these things. Jesus, scoot over. I can help out. Paul says, no, no, no. You were dead. And you were made alive again when Jesus was made alive because you're united to him by faith. He's, he's calling, he is calling the legalist to humility. You did not add one thing to any of this. 
You do not add one thing to any of this. And if we don't remind ourselves of that regularly, this came up in preaching cohort yesterday, so it's just at the front of my mind. If we don't remind ourselves regularly that we're only trusting in the life and suffering and endurance and patience and obedience of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection that gets, gets us into union with God and into, you know, like if, if I forget that for a second, I become convinced of my own superiority. I become just too quickly aware of how good I am if I'm not regularly reminded of that. But lest these people over here be forgotten, lest the worldly Christians be forgotten, Paul also says, by the way, you know how you follow these rules of spiritual powers? By the way, do you know that you're following rules that don't even matter anymore? Because he says, in this way, by the nailing of, sin, nailing of things to the cross, in this way he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. How does he do this? I've used this illustration before, but think about it this way, that on Good Friday on a cross, Jesus died and evil spent every last ounce of strength it had killing Jesus. Do you notice that in the Gospels there's this preponderance, there's this like ubiquity, there's this constant, like Jesus like, can barely walk two feet without getting bumped into a demon. It's because when Jesus appears on the scene, all of evil rushes and says, we gotta get this, we gotta take care of this. And so they try in a variety of ways, and evil thinks it wins when Jesus dies. It spends all its strength and it starts having a party. The problem is that Jesus doesn't stay dead, and when Jesus walks out of the grave, evil has nothing to fight back with anymore. It's been disarmed. It emptied its clip into Jesus' body, and Jesus' body walked out of the tomb. And not only are they disarmed, they're embarrassed, because everybody saw, everybody, everywhere in history, this one moment, the most important moment in history, everybody has seen, will see, or will come to terms with in heaven and on earth and under the earth. They've been embarrassed. And Paul says to these worldly Christians, you're coming into church and you're following these rules and they have no right to call your shots anymore because they have no power over you. None. No power over you. And here you are kind of bowing and scraping and doing all these things that they tell you to do and you're wrong. And you're wrong. He brings them together. He brings them together. We'll probably preach that verse again on Good, on, uh, good Friday, so just buckle down. So let me offer you some questions to consider as we enter into response time. Here's what response time is for, okay? It is not the extra two minutes you endure to get to communion to get out of here. You can make it that way, and we can't stop you, but here's what response time is for. You cannot go through your life as a follower of Jesus living on the fuel of good insights. Oh, Kyle said that, and I really like that, and da 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 And here's what happens. You will forget it. By the, anything I've just said, you will forget by the time you get to my car. By the time you get to your car. By the way, if you, you can get to my car if you want, but it'll be locked. If you don't think that scares me and any preacher ever, that you will not really remember anything I've ever really said to you over the rest of your life, boy, does it. But here's the reality. I'm not here to get you to remember. Things. I'm here to get you to respond to Jesus, who speaks through his preached word. And so we set aside a couple of minutes for you not just to rush on to the next thing, we spend a couple of minutes responding to Jesus so that we can take that one thing that caught our attention, that one bright spot, that one connection made in our head, and ask Jesus, what am I supposed to do about this now? That's what response time is for. Here are some questions, and staff might have more, but here are some questions. Where are you drifting into legalism or worldliness? Not, not are you drifting into legalism or worldliness? Where? Where are you drifting into legalism or worldliness? What baggage are you carrying such that you are resisting Jesus' invitation to set it down? Jesus, hang on, I'll be right there. I just kind of like grab all of this stuff, right? Jesus, 
come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and carry that the rest of the way to glory, and then I will give you rest. No, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Drop the baggage, come and follow me, and I will give you rest. If this is burdensome in some ways, it's because you're carrying baggage that you're not supposed to be carrying. Second, or third, I don't know, next question. Where are you heading? Has your time following Jesus made you more gracious? Has it made you more kind? Has it made you more loving? As Paul says in uh, Galatians 5, has it made you more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, good? Or is there more faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in your life because you've been following Jesus? Or is there outburst of anger? Is there selfish ambition? Are there lustful pleasures? Is there sexual immorality? Is there dissension? Is there division? Is there envy? Is there drunkenness? Has Jesus, following Jesus made you more or less? Has it caused you to blossom or has it caused you to shrivel? You were dead because of your trespasses and sins. Because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ. And he forgave all your sin. He canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we acknowledge the ways that we're not living like you have victory. Uh, we acknowledge the ways that we are operating in our own strength and invite you by the power of your Holy Spirit to move and to be here as we respond to you in that one step of obedience you're calling us to today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.